This morning's scripture reading comes from the book of Acts, chapter 2, starting in verse 14. It says, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you propose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2. We are in the uh, second portion of Acts chapter 2 this morning. Uh, Last week we dealt with verses 1 through uh, 13. Uh, 1 through 13, and we gave um, an overview of the book. And the overview went something like this, that the first 13 verses deal with the description of Pentecost. We read about the wind and the fire and the tongues. And 14 through 41 this morning deal with an explanation of Pentecost. And the next week, we'll look at the effects of Pentecost in verses 42 through 47. But this morning is verses 14 through 47. And verses 14 through 47 are a, um, or 42, excuse me, are a uh, sermon. Uh, they're a sermon by, uh, by Peter. And so we're going to preach a sermon about a sermon. Right? So that's, that's awesome. Uh, now you'll notice, um, as you heard Pastor Chris read a portion of the text, he did not read the whole sermon, uh, but the sermon uh, takes about three and a half minutes to read. Did I hear, I thought I heard an amen. <laughs> I know you're not really good at amens, but I thought I just heard an amen there. Okay, so, but just to be clear, um, in verse 40, uh, Luke says, and with many other words, he bore witness, continued to exalt them. So, exhort them. So what we know of this is these, these verses are not the, the whole sermon. Uh, though it's uh, only three and a half minutes, and some of you think I probably should take some notes from Peter. Uh, not so. He didn't preach a three and a half minute sermon, and, and you're not going to get a three and a half minute sermon uh, this morning either. Uh, but what we do find is a, a recounting of his sermon. What Luke is doing here, he's not giving a transcript of Peter's sermon. He's giving an account of Peter's sermon, a, a recounting of it. Nevertheless, though short, uh, there's a lot for us to consider here this morning. And there's many implications uh, to this, this passage, some of which we will take time with, some of them, them we will not take time with. But Luke starts off by identifying the preacher of this sermon as, as already been said, Peter, who is standing with the 12. You heard that read in verse 14. And he says, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. Now, we we, we ought not to move too quickly past the fact that the the speaker here is Peter. And you'll remember Peter. Most of us remember Peter. Uh, Most of us remember Peter for uh, 
many reasons. One, one may be because we identify with Peter. Um, but we do remember that Peter, not so long before this, was confronted with a young girl and denied Jesus. And now here, sometime later, he is standing up in front of thousands along with the 11, and he is preaching to those very people who rejected Jesus. Uh, we ought to pause and just recognize uh, this very simple truth that John Piper puts it this way. Don't ever think that the sin of your past means there's no hope for your future. That there's such encouragement in the life of Peter for, for all of us. You failed? Join the club. You've messed up? Join the club. That's not to minimize sin, not at all. But it is to say that your sin does not define you. It doesn't have to define you. That there is forgiveness available through the Lord Jesus. And we thank God for that. Our sin, the sin of our past, does not mean there is, there is no hope for our future. And if you needed proof, Peter is just that. Uh, in the verses that we'll look at this morning, verses 14 through 40, uh, 41, Peter starts off with an explanation of Pentecost. And he first starts with explaining what's going on? You might remember in verse 13, if you just look up a couple verses to verse 13, said, but others said, they are filled with new wine. So when Pentecost happened, when the Spirit came and the people started speaking in, in um, intelligible language or tongues, um, people were trying to explain how did this happen? What, what is going on? And one of the explanations of those who mocked was that they were, they were drunk. Well, Peter wants to clear that up pretty quick by, by telling them that, 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 in fact, that they were not drunk. Verse 15 says, For these people were not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. The third hour would be 9 a.m. Uh, Peter's making the point from a human perspective that they're not drunk. That, that is not the explanation for what is going on here. Humanly speaking, that's not the explanation. But what's more is Peter doesn't just leave it at that. He goes on to show and connect this phenomenon, connect, connect this, this uh, event called Pentecost with an Old Testament prediction by the prophet Joel. He says this in verse 16, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days, this was already read for us. We won't read it again at this time. But he says, in the last days, this, this is what's going to happen, that God's going to declare and his, his spirit will be poured out. He goes on to tell us more about what that, that is. Now, uh, very good, very godly brothers and sisters disagree on how to interpret this prophecy and what this prophecy actually is alluding to and what it applies to and who it applies to. Uh, what we can know is that this prophecy is from the prophet Joel in the Old Testament. And in the prophecy uh, written by Joel, it was written to the nation of Israel. It's not written to the church. It was written about the nation of Israel. And therefore, the, the events of which uh, Joel speaks will, will be finally and, and fully fulfilled at the second coming of Jesus. These are end time events. But... Peter is making application here to the church. That, that, that can't be understated. He is using this prophecy to talk about Pentecost. Uh, the point would be to say this, that what Peter um, is, is implying is the same spirit that Joel talked about is the same spirit that is, a, is here at Pentecost. The same spirit that will be poured out in full is poured out now. So we can see this prophecy as, as a partial fulfillment of Pentecost. If you read the first two verses, that makes sense. But the last three verses don't make sense for, to be filled out. Because the things in verses 
19, 20, and 21 did not happen at Pentecost. You could argue that verses 17 and 18 did happen at Pentecost, but the rest didn't. So maybe Peter's seeing partial. Maybe he's seeing a pre-fulfillment. Maybe he's seeing what, what is to come at, in the millennial kingdom. Nevertheless, uh, we do know that because the Spirit has come, we are in what is called the last days. That's absolutely true. When the Spirit has come, the last days are here. We are living in the last days, awaiting the completion of God's plan of redemption. That is to come. That has begun. Jesus has already come. He's lived life. He died the death. He's risen. Now the Spirit has come. He has provided everything we need for salvation. Now our job is to share that message. Peter's going to show us what that looks like, and we are called to do it as well. The prophecy of the coming events reminds us of the need for everyone, as verse 21 tells us, to call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. And if, 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 if you stop listening to me after this minute, he, hear this. You must call upon the name of the Lord in order to be saved. You cannot just merely think about these things. You cannot just give intellectual assent to these things. You must repent. You must believe on these things. This is an, an, an intentional act. You don't sort of get saved. You don't sort of believe. You don't kind of become it is not a progressive. There's a moment in time where God converts our heart. We must call out to God for salvation. You must call upon the Lord. Pentecost means that God can be known and those who know him are to make him known. And that is what Peter is here to do. In the following verses, 21 through 26, Peter transitions to the really the bulk of the passage and the main emphasis, the, the focal point of the message, which is Jesus. And rightly so, because Jesus, we know, is the climax of the redemptive narrative. That's what the Bible is. The Bible is a narrative. It's a grand narrative. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That is the grand narrative. And Jesus is the climax of it. And so Peter rightfully is getting to Jesus from Pentecost. He's not making a leap here. He's going to connect us, but he's going to Jesus because that's what needs to be known. He is the scarlet letter through the books of the Bible. He's the primary point of the scriptures. John Stott says it this way, the best way to understand Pentecost is not through an Old Testament prediction, but through the New Testament fulfillment. Not through Joel, but through Jesus. So we want to look at Jesus, not because we're somehow smarter than anybody else, but because Peter's directing us there this morning. This is how Peter explains Pentecost. This is what happened. How did this happen? Well, the short answer is that Jesus is alive. That's how it happened. That's how Pentecost happened is because Jesus is alive. Peter goes on to tell this story in four parts. We can see it in verses 22 and following. First, we see his life and his ministry. Listen to it. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Jesus' life on earth showed what the life, what life would be like in the kingdom. That's what Jesus came to do. Namely, the reversal of the curse and the restoration of all things. That's what Jesus began to show us with healings and with making things, um, making things right and bringing justice to this world. We see that by his mighty works, which Peter talks about, signs and what God did through him. And then he ends verse 22 by saying, and you yourselves know. 
What's Peter mean? He means, you know who I'm talking about. Jews, people listening to Peter, you know who I'm talking about. You know this Jesus. In this Jesus, verse 23, delivered up according to the definitive plan in foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Second thing Peter talks about is the death of Jesus. He's, he's expressing that the plan of, of, of Jesus' death was both, listen, was both divine and human in perspective. He, he shows both, right? So the first is that he shows the divine perspective. When he says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definitive plan and foreknowledge of God. What does that mean? That means this, that God was sovereign over the death of Jesus. That Jesus did not die as a victim at the hands of the Jews. Meaning Jesus didn't just didn't have anything else to do. He couldn't stop it. It just happened. That's absolutely not true. What Peter is saying is that God was over all of this. God was sovereign over all of it. God intended Jesus to die. That's absolutely true. He intended him to be the ransom for our sins and the culmination of the rescue mission for us to pay for our sins. However, man is responsible. Keep reading. This Jesus... Definitive plan, keep going. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Or in the NIV it says, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. They killed him. God didn't kill him, they killed him. Men killed Jesus. The motives and the the intentions, the heart that put Jesus' death was completely wicked. Those men killed Jesus were wicked men. One commentary writes it this way, the cross was part of God's plan, but the guilt was still theirs who delivered Christ to its agony and shame. Peter is showing us both. He's showing us that, that there, is, there is divine authority and sovereignty, and yet there is human responsibility. One pastor used this illustration to try to help people understand sovereignty and responsibility. He talked about a, a trip that he took over to Asia. He was a pastor here in America. And on this trip, he had several delays. It took him 70 hours to get to his destination. He was riding on a particular airline. And um, I'm not sure what that means to you. But nevertheless, he had multiple delays. So many delays that his, his plans were, were severely altered. That uh, other past, another pastor had to preach his sermons. And uh, he was not able to do some of the things that he was planning to do. And so when you look at a story like that, he says, well, here's the reality. God was sovereign over that. God knew that, that uh, so-and-so would be a better preacher than I would. God knew that, that they would need to hear from him instead of me. God, God knew that I wouldn't be there for that. God, God was sovereign over that. But that airline was responsible. It was their fault that he was late. Meaning, God overrules. God rules everything. But we have choices. We have responsibility. Saying the sovereignty of God doesn't mean you don't do anything. You do have responsibility. You have absolute responsibility. But that does not in any way overshadow the sovereignty of God. Now you might be saying, okay, but why is Peter talking about this? Why is Peter showing these two different things? Why is he showing that God was actually over this? Well, this is the reason. Because the Jewish audience believed that Messiah would not fail. Messiah would be victorious. Messiah would win. And so when Jesus came and Jesus fails, they say, well, that couldn't be the Messiah. Messiah wins. 
How could this loser be the Messiah? And Peter is saying to you, saying to us, saying to the Jews, he didn't lose. God's plan was for him to pay on the cross. That was God's plan. That was not at the hands of men where he was some helpless victim. Instead, he laid down his life in fulfillment of God's plan, in fulfillment of God's epic plan of salvation. Peter then goes on to tell us that Jesus is alive in verses 24 through 32. In verse 24, it says, And God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by them. First we see who raised Jesus. Jesus didn't raise himself. God raised Jesus. That's the first thing. The second thing is death could not hold him. Isn't that amazing? Death could not hold him. That, we don't have a category for that. Like that, that's not really explainable. I don't, I don't got a way to explain that to you. I really don't. Other than just to say that the power of death, which we find absolute, right? When, when death comes to, to you or to me, to our, our, our loved ones, like it's final. Not so. Not so with God. Death could not hold him down. The power of death, which we see as, as incredible, has nothing on God. Verses 25 through 31, Peter then looks at a prophecy uh, or, or a passage from uh, Psalm chapter 16, which David is writing. And he's not writing about himself here. He's writing about Jesus. Look at it in verse 25. And David said concerning him, Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me, and he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also uh, will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades uh, or let my holy one see, your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. David is not writing about himself. He is writing about Jesus. Why? Keep reading in verse 29. Brothers, I say to you, uh, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, who was both dead and was buried, and his tomb is with us today. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Basically, Peter is saying what David is saying is check the grave. David's still there. Jesus isn't. When David was writing in Psalm chapter 16, he's looking forward to this one whose body would not see corruption, who would not stay dead, but is alive. And then verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Peter says on top of that, not only does the Bible affirm that he's going to be risen, but we've seen him. People have seen him. Just a month ago, we were celebrating Easter, and we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and all the eyewitness accounts of Jesus, of seeing the literal, physical Jesus. The fourth and final part of the story of Jesus told by Peter is verses, in verses 33 through 36, and this is we see his exaltation. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. God did this. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says, he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Pentecost is a sign that Jesus had ascended back to the Father, 
back to the throne, was exalted at the right hand of the Father. This is what the point was. When Jesus said, it's best for you that I go, in John chapter 16, if I don't go, the Spirit doesn't come. The presence of the Spirit is evidence that Jesus is back with God. You would not have the Spirit, we would not have the Spirit, the Spirit would not have come at Pentecost if Jesus was still on the earth. Multiple reasons. One is that the whole point of the Spirit is to teach us about Jesus. That's what the Spirit came to do. So the Spirit wouldn't be here if Jesus was. So Jesus ascended means that the Spirit is here. Spirit is here means that Jesus is ascended. Peter is connecting Pentecost here with the ascension by quoting Psalm chapter 1, uh, 110, which we just read. He's using this text uh, to say that Jesus is the risen messianic king who is exalted to the Father. That's who this Jesus is. Again, David's not writing about himself. He's writing about Jesus. Then he makes this confession in verse 36. Hear it again. Let all of the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter's saying, don't miss it. Listen, this Jesus is the Lord and is the Christ. What? He's God and he is Messiah. He is king. Don't miss it. Peter's making the connection for these people and he's making the connection for us. This Jesus isn't just a teacher. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a good guy. He is the Lord and he is the Messiah. He is the one we have waited for. He is the king. He's here. This is the one we have waited for. And upon hearing this, what do the people do? Look at verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter explains Pentecost, why it happened. We'll get it to it in just a minute, but it was for the salvation of sinners. And when, when they heard, when they heard about this Jesus, they were cut to the heart, or they were pierced in their heart. They knew they were guilty. They recognized their guilt. They recognized that they were objects of God's wrath. How, how, were, they, how were they struck in the heart? How were they pierced in the heart? How does guilt come? How are you convicted? The Spirit. This is further evidence that the Spirit was there, that they were convicted. John chapter 16 says just that, that the Spirit has come to convict the world through, according to, excuse me, concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That's what the Spirit came to do. And we're seeing it right here, that through the preaching of the Word of God, as the Spirit has already come, people are convicted. They're cut to the heart. And they don't even wait. Notice, they don't even wait for Peter to tell them what's next. They ask. That's how ready they are. They don't wait for someone to say, you know what you need to do next, right? No, no, no. They're tell me. Tell me what's next. Man, I, I, I'm cut to the heart. I'm broken when I see this Jesus and hear about this king. What do I do? What does he say in verse 38? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Now, Peter is describing here conversion. And he does, the first two things he does is, is show Again, a human perspective and a divine perspective. The first is the responsibility of repentance. The responsibility of repentance is that we must repent. You must repent. 
Peter says, you must do it. This is a, a common refrain in the New Testament. Jesus said it. John the Baptist said it. The, the, uh, throughout the book of Acts, this idea of repentance, it said, repentance is not I'm sorry. That's not repentance. If you're repenting to someone and you say you're sorry, that is not repentance. We don't, under, we don't get repentance. Repentance even, isn't even just an apology. It's not just that I was wrong. Repentance is a turning. It's a 100%, 180 degree turn. It's I'm going this way and I turn that way. Literally, that's what repentance means. When we talk about it spiritually, when you repent, you change. It's a turning away. Saying you're sorry is part, but it is not repentance. Identifying your sin is part, but it is not repentance. If you say you're sorry, if you identify you're wrong and you continue in it, you have not repented. Repentance is a change. Luke 5, verse 32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And Peter here is calling for repentance. Repenting of their unbelief and turning in faith to Jesus as Lord and Christ. We'll come back to this in a second. But Christian, I want us to say something to those in this room who have, have come to Christ by faith already. Some of you have sought Jesus. Some of you have trusted him as your savior. But even today as you sit here, you are living like a practical atheist. You are not following Jesus. And the evidence of your unbelief is your refusal to submit to God as king. It is one thing to say you're a Christian. It is something very, very different to follow Jesus. The call here is to repent. To repent of what? To repent of your sin. To repent of your unbelief. When we sin, we are saying to God, I don't believe you. They say, well, I don't really say that. No, no, that is what you're saying. Because what you're doing in that moment, you're saying, my way is better than your way. I think this brings me life more than that brings me life. I think there's more fulfillment over here than over there. That's unbelief. If you actually believed that Jesus actually had life to give to you, why would you go anywhere else? You may know your Bible, you may attend church, but obedience is a sign that you actually believe your Bible. If we say, John says this in 1 John 1, 6, if we say we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we lie. We don't practice the truth. 1 John chapter 2, verse 4, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he, Jesus, walked. Christian, of what do you need to repent? Let me be clear. We're not talking about perfection. We're not talking about everyone's perfect. We're not talking about you never sin. That's not what we're saying. But we're saying when we sin, we repent. The only difference between you and a non-Christian is that you repent of your sin. 
And that you can repent of your sin because of the work of the Spirit and forgiveness is available. Now, if you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you're here, you're kind of like, this is unknown territory for me. I'm not really sure what exactly you're talking about. Maybe you kind of got a little bit of Jesus as Lord and King. Maybe, maybe that kind of made some sense that, that this is, there's a King that, that you might need to know about. Uh, and we want you to know about him. When this says that he's Lord and King, which means sometimes people will say, uh, make Jesus the Lord of your life. Or make Jesus the king of your life. Um, I'm sorry, but Jesus is Lord or king whether you make him that or not. You're not making him anything. He is the Lord and king. What you do is you recognize it. And you orient your life around it. That's evidence that you actually, actually believe it. Now in verse 38, Peter says, to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, there can be some misunderstanding here, and I, I think that it, the best way to understand it, this would be, be like this. Repent and be baptized because of the forgiveness of your sins. Meaning, what Peter is not saying is that baptism, by being baptized, you receive forgiveness of your sins. That's not what Peter is saying here. And on the, on the whole of the scriptures, that could not be what the message of salvation is. It would be better to understand that baptism follows belief. That baptism does not save. That because you have been saved, you're baptized. It's an evidence that, that I have received forgiveness of my sins. Look at verse 41 for further proof. So those who received his word were baptized. Meaning those who had believed were baptized. Baptize, baptism follows belief. Tyndale commentary again. Repentance demands the witness of baptism. Forgiveness is followed by the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 39 shows us the sovereign. If, if um, repentance is a responsibility of our, on our part, what, what is God doing? Well, he is divinely, sovereignly working in conversion. Look at verse 39. For the promise is for you, and for your children, and to all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Do you know if you're a Christian here today that God has called you? You didn't find God. God found you. God called you. The reason you respond to God is because God calls you. When we think about salvation, we say, I believed in God. Yes, you did. But you know what happened first? God called you. That's what it says in verse 39, that God calls who? Those who are far off. In the context, that'd be Gentiles. But by extension, it's you and me. We're far off. We're away from God too. He calls and he saves, verse 41. And then he establishes a new community. We're going to look at that next week in verses 42 through 47. One writer says it this way, no one is so far removed that God cannot redeem them. I don't know what your, your story is. I don't know what your past looks like. Some of you might think, man, can God forgive me? Can God, can God really forgive the things I've done? You know, I've done a lot of things. Yeah. Yes, he can. If there's anyone here who wouldn't say, I've done a lot of things, can God forgive me? You're, you, you haven't yet figured out the weight of your sin. If you're saying, can God forgive me? You're at least identifying the weight of your sin. That's a good thing. Now identify the love of God for you. That his love overshadows even our sin. There is more grace in God's heart than there's sin in our past. God calls and we respond. Why would we repent? Well, for one, there's punishment coming. That's absolutely true. 
But I like what Romans chapter 2, verse 4 says. That it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Sometimes we are, we are uh, scared into repentance. Judgment's coming. Better repent. And listen, judgment is coming, and you better repent. But the fact that there is a gospel, there is good news, that there is salvation, that's kindness. That's the kindness of God that he would give you an offer like that. You don't deserve anything but judgment. Neither do I. So the kindness of God is that there's actually, a, there's actually redemption. There's actually a way for you to be saved. Maybe there's some here this morning who have yet to come to Christ in repentance. And I want to invite you today. The Apostle Paul says it this way. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Verses 41 and 40, 40 and 41 tell us the fruit of the gospel. As after hearing these things, we find out that there is an evangelistic harvest of souls. 3,000 come to Christ after Peter preaches. That's quite a response. That's quite a, an altar call, right? Billy Graham's got nothing, right? So here, here they come and they respond, right? They respond to this gospel. They respond to the good news. They recognize that it was them. They're the ones who are far off. Some of them were, were, were ones who he, he refers to as those, you and your children, and those who are far Will you respond to that? Will, will you identify yourself in that list? If you've never come to Christ, would you come to him today? Forgiveness is available through Jesus. Humanly speaking, this, this, the chance of revival seemed pretty low here. Remember, these are the people who were not so hot on Jesus, and yet the Spirit of God came and changed everything, and God was on the move. And we believe God is on the move now. God's still saving souls. People are still repenting of their sin and turning to Christ. And if you need to repent today, today's your day. Today's your day to repent of your sin and turn to Christ and receive his forgiveness. That's the invitation today, to repent. As I pray this morning, uh, here's, a, here's a prayer. If, if you're someone who doesn't know Jesus and you might not know what to say or how to pray, uh, this prayer might just help guide you um, as you express your need for him this morning. For you who, who are Christians, who are, have yet to repent of sin in your life, the invitation for you is to do just the same, to repent, to come to this one who is ready to forgive. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your help now. God, there's some here this morning who need to admit that they're weaker and more sinful than they ever before believed. And yet... As we hear Peter talk about Jesus, we say, man, we are more loved and accepted than we could ever dare hope. This is the one who, who came and lived and died for our sins, took our punishment and offers forgiveness and new life through repentance and faith, through turning from our sin and trusting him. Oh God, would we do that today? For those who've never done that, would they do that this morning? You're, you're, you're here. Forgiveness is available for Christians who are not walking with you this morning. God, we pray for a return. We pray that they would come home to the Father who is waiting with open arms to forgive, to welcome. God, would they receive the welcome of Jesus this morning through repentance and faith. And God, would you help us to turn our eyes on you now. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.